Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections to the upcoming event, Salt iConnections in Asia, taking place on November 11th through the 13th at Marina Bay Sands, Singapore. Salt Eye Connections Asia is the largest capital introductions event in the Asia-Pacific region, bringing together 1,500 leading asset allocators and alternative asset managers from around the world. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. So I got on a plane in Newark, New Jersey, headed for Nashville, Tennessee. Oddly enough, Dan and Danny, I was in Nashville this time last year for a Georgetown University event. I flew down for something different. I actually had a speaking gig on Thursday of this week. Now, I mention that because I like to read on planes. Typically, I'll just sit there and stare forward. But this time, I actually brought a book. By the way... This is the On The Tape Podcast. I am Guy Adami. That's Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. In just a few minutes, Gabriela Santos, the Managing Director and the Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, will be joining us for an in-depth conversation about the market. But the book that I brought with me, Danny, and I think you might find this interesting, is For Whom the Bell Tolls, Ernest Hemingway, 1940, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And it really struck me as odd. And there's a scene in the book, if there are such things, scenes in books, where the protagonist was, how do I say it, making love to a certain woman in the forest. And he asked her afterwards, did you feel the earth move when we were engaged in that act? And it made me think, of course, the great Carol King song, I Feel the Earth Move, which, by the way, I think she got from that. But what I'll tell you is the bells are tolling and the earth is moving under our feet. And why do I say that, Danny? Because AI is moving in one direction. And then in the other direction, you have consumer debt. You have retail stocks. You have banks that don't get off the mat. You have material stocks that are getting whacked. You have continued geopolitical risk with the United States and China. You have all these headwinds. The earth is moving under our feet, Danny. But nobody really seems to care. I keep telling myself the stock market is not the economy and the economy is not the stock market. And I'm looking for every excuse, people trust me, to, to turn bullish. I want to be bullish. You think it's fun to wake up in the morning and be bearish? It's not. No, it's not fun. I want to be willfully ignorant bullish and just go buy the tape on things that we knew were going to happen, actually that result in things that may make things worse in the future. So. It is what it is. There are a lot of mixed messages coming out. I could find as many bullish data points, maybe as bearish data points, but valuation be damned. And let's just talk about this debt ceiling issue. The debt ceiling issue was resolved in a way that actually was very bullish. What are, there is no cap on the debt ceiling until January 1st, 2025. Did you hear what I said, guy? There is no cap. Borrow away. Let's just keep, let's just keep monetizing this crap all the way through, right? So we're going to go from 31.8 or where we are now to whatever it's going to be. Yes, they did cap some type of discretionary spending to a degree, but we just gave a blank check to the government for better, or for worse. We'll see how that lays out. But so that's one thing, right? So that I guess at the end of the day, that's bullish near term, right? Because it was resolved and now you can just spend on whatever you want to spend. But the cross currents guy to which you're talking about, the other things that are out there, the consumer debt levels, things that are going to matter that you can't just, unless the government decides to get rid of those too, can't, don't, don't just go away. That's happening. And yes, I get it. The mixed messages in the job market, 
I don't want to follow weekly job trends, right? I don't want, I know we're getting a jobs number here again tomorrow, but how did we go in one day period or two day period from a 70% chance of 25 bips higher to a 30% chance? We flip-flopped and I'll keep saying, like I said last week, that is the number one driver in this market right now is Fed fund futures. That's it. Just overlay those changes to the S&P and that's what you get because the people are looking for immediate reasons to be bullish or immediate gratification on the market. Yeah, and I guess in the near term, when you think about this Fed meeting in a couple of weeks, the Fed fund futures were pricing, I think, at their highest 40% of a 25 basis point hike at the June meeting. That's come down now below. No, it was above 60. Was it really? Okay. Yeah, it was right. So now it's below 30 if we look at the CME yeah. Fed watch tool there. I, listen, never short a dull market. And that's really what we have had. If you think about it over the last two months or so, we traded in this very tight range in the S&P 500. We've had the NASDAQ blow out. Semis are obviously a big part of that. NVIDIA's move over the last week and a half, gaining $300 billion in market cap is truly astounding. And you think about all the other names that it's dragged up. But to your point, guys, the Russell 2000 small caps get out of their own way. I know that this is Thursday into the close. Energy stocks are bouncing a little bit with crude up three and a half percent, but energy stinks, retail stinks, materials, metals, minings, all those stocks stink, financials stink, both large cap and regionals. There's no boogeyman right now, I guess. The boogeyman was this debt ceiling. And we started talking about it early. I don't think any of the three of us thought there was really going to be a scenario where we defaulted, right, and sending global financial markets and economies into disarray. But now it's really hard to put your finger on it, especially at a time where people are totally disregarding any sorts of valuations relative to what headwinds to growth might be. And the last point, Danny, you just mentioned this May jobs report that's going to be out by the time you're probably listening to this. We still have unemployment at 3.4%. And even with all the consumer data that we're seeing, it still belies economy that's doing okay. The bogeyman is the incremental buyer. Who is the incremental buyer of the S&P up here? But I was saying before we came on air today, so when things feel really shitty and the market goes down and it's at the it's getting punished and we're down to let's say October 3600 there's a point there where it feels inevitable that the market's going to absolutely crash that everything's lined up this is the exact opposite right this is with a point where to your point I don't know what can happen to take the market down to the point you just made Dan which probably means we're near the limit of where it's going to be to the upside because it's not going to take a lot to get the market to sell off. It feels like it's on fragile footing, right? It feels like it's a really thin piece of glass that we're on, but it is what it is. And I'll say it again, the chase begets the chase. These fund managers have to participate. Now they're getting embarrassed, right? And they're going into this, this I said, this June's going to be crazy because the second quarter markups or whatever's going to happen here, this is going to be a race. So similar to January, when we began the year, the longer that if June starts like this and keeps going, it may be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, there's nothing I can say differently, guy. Certainly feels that way. And again, we talk about passive investing all the time. Money flows are there regardless of headlines, regardless of what's going on with the underlying fundamentals. It doesn't seem to matter. Money is flowing into the market. And that continues to be the case. One thing we mentioned earlier on Market Call this week was seven stocks now comprise, and think about this for a second, seven stocks comprise 29% of the S&P 500. That's a staggering number. Those same seven stocks, I believe, are 60% or so of the NASDAQ. That is remarkable. And again, people say it doesn't matter. We've seen this before, not to this magnitude. So the breadth of the market clearly is not there. Now, everything's getting dragged up on the euphoria around a certain number of things, not least of which is AI. But you're talking about valuations now for these companies that are absolutely stretched. And I don't want to harp on NVIDIA because it's not necessarily fair. Dan talks about this all the time. They're a wonderful company. There's no denying that whatsoever. They've been managed extraordinarily well. A company now with a trillion-dollar market cap that maybe can do $50 billion in the out year. So you're still talking about a company that's trading 20 times revenues. And think about the growth that needs to continue to take place in order to grow into that valuation. I think it's staggering. And Dan, I think you mentioned this on OK Computer, and we talked about it as well. Sun Microsystems in 19, I wanted, what was it, 1999-2000, were talking about the same things. That CEO warned people of the inevitable, saying it was unsustainable. But here we are again, seemingly, Dan, 
making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, the one point I would just make about NVIDIA right now, and I've made this a couple times this week on Fast Money, OK Computer, and Market Call, anywhere anyone has a mic in front of my fat mouth here. Listen, the, the rally that has been sparked just in the last week, right, since NVIDIA reported and guided higher, they guided higher by $4 billion on a $7 billion consensus. So they're expecting to do $11 billion in revenue. Think about what just happened. In the last week, okay, names associated with NVIDIA and the buying of these chips and the companies that are going to be deploying these chips into supercomputers and data centers, they're going to do all this stuff that these companies are not going to be able to really monetize anytime soon. It sparked a half a trillion dollar rally in a week, a $4 billion revenue beat. So you ask me how I feel about this, how I feel about this as a technology, as I feel about the major platform companies in an arms race with each other, right? So they don't get like left behind a little bit. I said, yeah, fine. This is like a normal tech cycle. We see this again and again, but we've never seen it to this sort of extent in such a short period of time. And if you're buying into this now, and again, I might've said the same thing three weeks ago before this rally. It doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And I'll just say this just to put a bow on this. There is this concentration based on this one narrow premise that will broaden out fairly dramatically, but it's not going to broaden out from all-time highs in a stock like NVIDIA that just ticked a trillion dollars in market cap or these other multi-trillion dollar market cap companies that are spending a few billion dollars extra in a quarter. And that's to me what the risk is. So if you're buying it here, you tell me if it, let's say you're buying NVIDIA at $400, okay, which was just $250 a month and a half ago. Um, if you're buying it here and it goes back, let's say $50 or $100, are you going to sell it down there? No, you're probably going to average in. What are you going to do if it fills in the entire gap and continues to go lower? Okay. So my point is people make fairly dramatic mistakes at these sorts of different bounds, right? They sell at the lows in October and they're buying at highs right here. Danny, let me ask you a question. We talked about the fact that I had watched the big short a few months ago and I had a very heartfelt conversation with you on the podcast. I actually got a little emotional, but there's a scene in the big short that I think is eerily reminiscent of what's going on. The housing market, which you were betting against, was actually going the way you were betting. It was moving in the right direction for your positions, yet your positions were going the other way. Your positions were going against you. And I wonder the level of frustration you must have felt then, does it mirror the frustration that I know I'm feeling now in terms of you could see the landscape, you can see what's going on, and things are actually working out the way you think they're working out, but the market, your positions are telling an entirely different story. So Michael Burry's positions, he was in there early and he saw them go the wrong way. When we entered the credit default swap trade, the famous trade, it went in our direction immediately. However, our equity book prior to that certainly was frustrating beginning in 2005 and really six when I joined them. And it was already clear in 2005, but in 2006, you remember the market made new highs in 2007. It was evident to us, but people just were willfully ignorant into it. And but eventually, there's one common denominator in that trade, which was home prices, right? You knew that the reversion to the mean had to happen because if home prices stopped going up, the rating agencies did not have anything in them for, for down home prices. Think about that for a second. So that may have been inevitable. Now, again, Guy, you saw the movie. If the government had stepped in sooner and understood what was happening sooner in the markets, they could have buffeted that trade and no, no pun intended, although he did come to the rescue of Goldman, and stopped it from actually deteriorating to the degree. And again, I'm not going to compare 2008 to anything, but let me just say this. I'm looking here when Dan was talking in video, I'm looking at this R2D2 C3PO with the C3 AI thing, right? That, yeah, famous Tom Siebel, bubble boy. We're looking at the stock that's down, it's traded up obviously into the quarter, but here's the remarkable thing about that. And I know they've rewritten the description of the company. Now it's just an artificial intelligence company, technology company. It must've been rewritten for years, although they've been in it, but it's mainly in the natural resources area. Anyway, two weeks ago, they came out, yes, we're AI. They basically pre-announced the quarter, which they just announced, and they missed two weeks later. I'm trying to figure out a, a quarter that was closed and then announced. How is it possibly missed? I'm really confused on that for a second. So that's, a whole, that's not an issue except credibility-wise when you're dealing in the space, and that's why people are hiding. And let me just say this. I'm gonna put my bullish hat on here for a second. We can talk about market breadth. We can talk about whatever statistic that we want. At the end of the day, to 80% of retail that's trading out there right now, those seven stocks, are the stock market. 
They don't give a shit. To them, the market's ripping. The bears are wrong. They're not taking a step back and looking at the underlying. And guy, the point you just made on housing, I mentioned on a market call yesterday, okay, the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, is now bailing borrowers out. They just passed a, they didn't pass it yet. It's a 30-day comment period where they're going to pay a portion of the mortgage payments, which are due. They're going to send them to the mortgage servicer so they don't have to take the loan out. It's a long story, but a technical matter. They're actually providing 20, 30% in some cases of people's mortgage payments now that won't be able to afford it. That's in the lower end. They don't, that's not Fannie and Freddie. That's Jenny Mae mostly. But to your point, Guy, like underneath the surface, things aren't getting any better. Credit card debt, we see it. Two points that I just took away from that. Credibility, okay, and valuation. There's a couple. So, so Guy, going back to the Scott McNeely quote, so he was the CEO of Sun Microsystems, okay? And this was a quote to Bloomberg in 2002. In 2002, late 2002, the NASDAQ was down, I think, 85% from its all-time high. Stocks like Sun were down like 90%, 90% or something like that. So this is McNeely's quote from 2002. Two years ago, we were selling at 10 times revenues when we were at $64. At 10 times revenues, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes that I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes that you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is legal. And then that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? Okay, so here's the point. Jensen Wang, okay, CEO of NVIDIA, he's the fourth largest shareholder. He owns 86 million shares. Okay, those are worth billions and billions of dollars. All the power to him. Is he making some hyperbolic comments about the new dawn of this, this AI era? Yeah, he is. I don't think he's like bubble boy. I don't think he's poster boy. Investors are willing to pay this, okay? And so when you think about the new guidance that they just gave, it was trading at 25 times this year's sales. Okay, you heard what McNeely had to say about his stock at 10 times sales back 21 years ago. I think that's just, that's just math, okay? So when people say to me, I was at a dinner last night, I'm going to not say who or whatever. I said, at some point in the not so distant future, NVIDIA will get cut in half again. Everybody at the table, their jaws almost dropped and hit the table, okay? That will happen. That's a certainty, okay? And the higher it goes right now is the greater the certainty, in my opinion, because of this math. So history is certainly rhyming, if not repeating. I don't think a company like NVIDIA is going to go down the way of a Sun Microsystems, but all of the pieces are in place and they're very similar than they were to the situation in the late 90s. Meanwhile, I said, what was the incentive for NVIDIA to give this guidance? Because what they don't need to raise money. They filed a $10 billion shelf. Yeah. I'm not saying they're going to use it, but the guy called it on market call I, Tuesday. I, I, what, he said, Danny, what, what does he call that? A Friday night dirty? That was a Friday night dirty. That's exactly <laughs> but what listen, that was. They like. should be doing that. Why wouldn't they? I, Investors are, the stock's up five and a half percent to close the week out. That, but People are tripping over If that does happen, each other. then I question credibility, but who Why? cares for today? I believe the revenue guys. No, for the second quarter. I'm saying, you said it yourself. Is that orders for the year? Is that orders yeah. for take-up guidance well, for the rest be, of the year? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. Right. All I'm saying is that file. So the here's the last one. Doug Cass brought this to my attention earlier in the week. Guy, I don't want to get your take on this. And this was in Barron's and was citing a Deutsche Bank calculation. And he said, from the beginning of 2023 through Thursday, this is last Thursday, the S&P was up 8% versus 1% decline for the equal-weighted S&P, a difference of 9.3 percentage points for all of 1999. The spread between the two measures was also 9.3 percentage points, which was exceeded only by 1998 when it was 16.3%. So, so again, we've seen this sort of concentration and we've seen the spread between market cap weighted and equal weighted. I think it's just clear that this could go on much further than people expect. But at the end of the day, when I use this on one of our other pods, this is quoting the wire here, the game's the same. It just got a lot more fierce. And that's only just the fact. names have changed. And that's yeah. clearly going on. And obviously, it didn't augur particularly well for the market going forward. And you say it can last a lot longer. I agree with you there. I also say this I think things happen a lot faster in today's world than they did 23 or so years ago. So just keep that in the back of your mind. And listen, technology, I get it. Everybody's all geeked up. I understand what's going on. We can talk about valuations to the blue in the face. People will tell you if you trade on valuation alone, you're destined to fail without question. I understand. But at a certain point, math matters. I said that last week, and I think McNeely's quotes are exactly right. And listen, I don't know if NVIDIA is going to be cut in half, but I'll tell you something. 
They're in the real deep end of the pool now. And the move we saw higher was not short covering. That move was people piling in. So this is just now people adding to positions or new longs getting in. And we'll see how that pans itself out. Talk about a company, though, in, in terms of a crazy market, Danny. Broadcom or Avago, whatever they call themselves now, symbols AVGO. This was a $600 stock in the beginning of the month of May. I want to say May 7th or so. Traded north of $900. Now, you'll say, ah, we're seeing this. It's a $300 billion company. And the move that we saw earlier this week when it traded north of $913-ish, only to close lower on the day, around 805, is not the sign of a healthy market. That's anecdotal. I get it. But this is not a small company. There's madness all around. Yet people want to put the happy glasses on and say everything's just fine. And I would submit, along with the bond market volatility, which is back, along with twos, tens, which is inverting again to the tune of almost 80 basis points. You know what? There's a lot to be worried about out there. Yeah, just to be clear. And so Broadcom reports Thursday after the close. So by the time you're listening to this, they will have reported. And the implied move in the options market is about 12%. So to your point, Guy, about a 330 billion dollar market cap company that is expected to move $30 billion in either direction on an earnings report. And given the volatility that we saw last week in NVIDIA and some of the other names, I guess the difference here, and again, this is a cheaper stock on earnings is trading about 19 times expected earnings growth at 10% this year, 18 times expected earnings growth of 6% next year, but it still trades at about nine times sales. Okay. So again, going back to McNeely's example from 20 years ago of a company at 10 times sales, I think people are piling into this because it's cheaper with some similar sorts of exposure, Danny. Yeah. Listen, it's Broadcom, AI chip deals, Apple, Meta, Google, they're in the right, they're, they fall in the right category. And I look at Microsoft today. Yeah, it's a great company. It's traded in a $75 billion range today, which is bigger, I'm sure, than half the companies that are out there in the marketplace. The difference in 99, 2000 and today is that I remember just, again, we talked about it last week. There were a lot of companies that couldn't survive, that stocks would still go up. We knew they weren't. These companies are going to survive. Most of the companies we just mentioned are going to be around. We're talking about valuation. Where does it settle in? When do things come back to earth? I am at the point right now that I am, when I just did push-ups, Dan, before the- I, I saw you. I don't- You only got to seven. Well, oh, I couldn't. I thought yeah. I was have a heart attack. No, wait a second. Yeah, I'll say that again. Little, no, I didn't. I could just, do a hundred. I think I could do a hundred. Anyway, my point is, this is the moment. This is where I, I feel it. I feel it in my plums. I feel it in my, feel plums. my plums. I feel it in my plums. I feel it in my plums. Let the boy watch. <laughs> we're going to have- Let the boy watch. We're going to have, this is it. We are, I go, oh, yeah, Dan, you said that. This has to be, because I don't know what else to say here. There's nothing to say that can- either convince people to be careful. There are a lot of smart people out there who aren't participating yet, who feel like, fuck, ah, am I going to have to chase what people, this will come back to earth to the point that Dan and Guy are making. It just will. How long is it going to take? I don't know. And it's just, it's really frustrating when you work in an industry for so long that over a long period of time, all that matters is card speak, as we say in poker, fundamentals will matter. You go through these periods of time where they don't. And you're either going to grow into these to these prices or you're not. And the majority of these companies will not grow into these valuations. And how does it look? And when does it happen? I don't know. But I'll play the long game. And when I say long, I'm not buying. I'll play the long game here in terms of owning quality companies over a period of time. And I'm willing to miss all this for the disaster at the craps table when you bet the come. We have the pass line, and then you bet the come bet five times, and you are spread out on the four, five, six, eight, nine, ten with full odds behind it, and then the seven comes and you lose my it man, all. You my, know what I'm my, saying, guy? Am I listen, speaking your I've language? Been there, listen, I have yeah. been there 100%. Yeah. I've been playing the don't you know, pass now for four months. I think what's happening here so. to use the yeah. poker parlance, Danny Moses is sitting with pocket queens. The cat on, on the other side of the table has two seven off suit. And, you know, the flop comes out two, two, seven. 100%. And I, by the way, Danny's going by the way, all in. And I'm all in because who could possibly have stayed in with two seven off suit in my <laughs> ear? Anyway, yes. Continue. And that's what's going on in the market here. And again, not to cherry pick because that's not what we're doing, but you look at what's going on across the retail landscape. And we say this all the time, but 73% of this economy in the United States is driven by people basically buying shit or doing shit. That's just the fact. And you look at what Dollar General said. Dollar Gen went down 16% on Thursday. Once a $32, $33 stock move, the lowest level we've seen in multiple years. But it's not just Dollar General, Dollar Tree. Look at what Target said. Now, people are going to say Target is getting beaten up on this whole woke thing. That's horseshit. Target was going down 
a lot longer than that. It was going down long before that came out. So there are retailers across the spectrum. You say in the high end, you know what? The high end starting to feel it as well. So across a swath of retail right now, we're seeing some weakness. Dan, what do they call it when we put stuff in the show notes? They say we're going to put it in the show notes. Oh, that's odd. We should put the dollar gen comments in the show notes because they are seeing something that the market does not want to or is enabled of seeing. You know, it's funny, and Danny has made this point on many occasions that obviously doing your bottoms up work and looking at companies sometimes away from your kind of macro views, your top down is really important. And sometimes though, it's really hard to put things together and figure it all out because everything you just said about dollar gen and target and is interesting. But then I look at what you just ended that commentary guy about some of the higher end stuff. Look at Nike sold off 20% in just the last month and a half. Look at Starbucks is down 15% in the last month. Look at Disney that's down 15% in the last month. And all three of those stocks used to trade at a premium to their peers. They used to trade at a premium to a market multiple, right? And you were paying for high quality and really durable discretionary spending, right? What do you make of that? When you see those three names, like you could have put together a nice little ETF pre-pandemic with those three stocks. It would have been like, take it to the bank. That's a blue chip sort of thing. And they act like dog shit. And so it's just funny when you put it all together. Today, I'm looking at my fact set screen. It is a rip roaring day and it is broad rally. And if you are bullish, you really want to pray for breath. You almost want those big seven or big eight to slow down their ascent and you want energy to join the party. You want big banks to get back on their horse because some of those big money centers act horribly. A day like today, Goldman Sachs talking about trading revenue is going to be down 25% in whatever period they're looking at and they're considering for their job cuts. That stock's down uh, next week at some point. I'm sure we'll have the KRE down 5% or something like that. There's no quick fixes for the stuff that's coming off. And really what we're talking about here is that this kind of, whether the Fed pauses, whether they, I don't know, whether they say they're done, one and done, or this and that, whatever, it's still this lag effect of 500 basis points, right, working into the economy, it still really hasn't been shown, not in the stock market. Again, Danny, this is going back to dissecting the difference between the market and the economy. There are parts of the market that act like we are in a recession, but I guess when you look at the S&P up 10.5%, and you look at the NASDAQ 100 up 33%, it really feels like we are in a rip-roaring economy, and really the only thing that's working in the economy right now are low unemployment and housing, Like when you think about it, because everything else feels like crap. Yeah, VIX is under 16, by the way, just so we're on the same page. So that's normally the point where, Guy, I think you would agree, that's the point where you got to start to be very careful. In terms of uh, shorting volatility at these levels, there's really not much more room for it to go down. But yeah, the real economy stuff that you can't, I talked about, you can't really meme and you can't AI it, tangible equity earnings numbers that can't be dreamt, that can't be changed, right? That can't be, whatever, aren't going to participate in something like this because you want to be, again, willfully ignorant or you want to believe in a dream. You can, you can dream these That's exactly things. what happened in late 1999. That, it, but that's the point is that like all those groups that we just talked about, they started rolling over and people still believe the dream, but because of the concentration in the major indices, that's why we continue to see what felt like a bullish market, despite the warning signs that were flashing in the economy. Jim Bianco said it a couple of weeks ago on, on the tape. It was a great episode, if you haven't listened to it, just about how the economy changed permanently. And when I say permanently, probably for a generation because of COVID. Things have, people change the way they live, they change where they work, they change their habits, they change, everything changed, right? So part of this can be just attributed to what's the new, right? And I'll tell you this, if you're not performing as a company in this environment right now, and there's a reason that a lot of these stocks are being left for dead, you tell me a bullish case for a company that is already not being able to produce numbers, Dan, and or is having issues in retail, because what can they change right now in the face of consumer, which is facing headwinds? I don't care what anybody says. Yes, inflation may be coming down, but rates are staying stubbornly high. And even when the 10-year yields come in and so forth, the borrowing rates are still staying high because the spreads are still staying wide. And so it's the haves and the have-nots, and no one cares about the have-nots right now. They're just not going to own them. They're just going to shift to these other names, and they're willing to overpay for growth, what they believe is growth and or FOMO, and leave these, quote, value stocks behind. It gets dangerous now because I think the voices that are trying to warn or have concern get drowned out by the broader market. With each passing day, we're in June now, it gets more and more difficult. Danny, you mention this all the time. People will start to chase and people just don't want to hear it at a certain point. That's though, I think, 
when you have to get your the peak of being cautious. That's when all the warning signs should be going off. When you know the most ardent bears or whatever you want to call people that have been warning start to fall into the ether, and you no longer hear the voices, and it's just the continued parade of people saying how great everything is. That to me is when things get a little bit scary. And I'm telling you, valuations, this entire move, in my opinion, it's not on earnings growth. It's certainly not on revenue growth. I guarantee for most of these companies, it's not on margins. It's all on multiple expansion. And how long can that last? Dan said it earlier, it can last a lot longer than you think, but we're pushing the envelope here in terms of multiples. And I get worried that people are going down the same path we've been down a number of times where they throw caution to the wind and they get themselves involved in things they probably shouldn't be in. That's interesting. We had this conversation guy with Liz Young from SoFi earlier today, and I think it's really important. We were quoting John Butter's work. He's a senior earnings insight analyst over there at FactSet, and he tracks all of the guidance that is given by S&P 500 companies in his report that dropped today in the earnings insight blog. Analysts are cutting earnings estimates for S&P 500 companies for Q2 2023 by 2% aggregate during the first two months of the quarter. This decline is smaller than the five-year average, the 10-year average, the 15-year average, and the 20-year average for this period. What's interesting is the three prior months, these cuts were about 5% or so, okay? So again, as the market was bottoming, right? It bottomed in October and it kept on going. So estimate cuts for each quarter were coming down for the first two months. 5%. Now they're only down 2%. So I guess the question that I have, Danny, is like, when you think about that, we've had this huge 20% rally off the lows in the S&P 500, right? As estimate cuts were coming at 5%, companies were beating those lowered estimates, right? Stock market has reacted. Now the level of the cuts is getting really small. At some point, if there is a downward revisions period again, right, that could be the thing that causes investors to start thinking about where the S&P is trading at about 18 times, which is basically in line with the five-year average and a little above the 10-year average, despite the fact that the Fed funds is 5%. <laughs> I know, I just broke your brain Hold here on. a little Let bit. Let me just say, yeah. what does FactSet say the 2024 S&P earnings are? 246? Yeah, what, so what, looking up like stuff? 9% or something like that. Like that's tell me, is that the number? Because I'll tell you what bulls do. Once the second quarter gets reported and no matter what it is, they'll just look ahead to 2024 and we're trading it. By the way, we're trading at 17 times right now, 2024, which is really, so give me a, again, with this whole thing, oh, it's, oh, who cares though? Because in 2024, the Fed's going to be cutting rates. So I could argue on one side or the other, the bottom line is, I'll just say this again, hands are getting forced, fundamentals be damned. You got to stay in business at this point. And that's the level that I feel like some of these funds, and I say hedge funds as well, they went through this period of time they thought was over of massively underperforming the passive markets, massively underperforming, right? Just to hold your nose, cover your eyes and buy something. Stock picking came back. It did, came back for about five quarters. It's gone. Now, you could argue the stock picking's live and well because you're buying, but no smart money manager, when I say smart, and one that's really buying stuff in terms of valuation running models can justify the majority of these moves, they can't. Here's the thing, they are buying and they are chasing and like S&P futures, like open interest and all this stuff and, and puts, they're at really high levels, okay, So on the puts. And so that's, I think, giving some people this false confidence that hedge funds are really short. No, they're long these things. They're YOLOing all these calls and all these big names. We've seen this before, okay? And they're just hedged up with S&P futures. When you think about it, because the concentrations make sense. If you're long and you're generating all of this alpha in these single names, right? But then you're like either short futures or long puts in, in the major indices, that works. It gives you the confidence to stay but long. The guy knows, the, and you know this too, these are the tap on the shoulder days. The, these are the tap on the shoulders on the levered funds, right? When I say the levered funds, the you got the millenniums out there and the silver, the Baliaznis and so forth that run these pods of different sector pods and they levered two, three, four they times. They lever, but they don't Hold have on. big nets though, Danny. Oh, no, I understand, yeah, yeah. but they don't. But this is when they start to underperform and they get the tap to bring things down. And bringing things down for the most part, right? You could be short some of these names, Dan, is my point. that are driving these higher and it feads on itself. And I said the other day, I'm like, AI has been alive and well in HFT, high frequency trading world now for 15, 20 years in terms of the quants that know exactly what's happening, what's being bought, what's being sold, getting ahead of it and the trend followers and the people that are picking up on it. And it's, I think it's helping feed this 
feeds fire. And to be fair, it feeds its way on the way down too. I but, just want to say one other thing too. And so if you're listening to this, you probably notice a different tone here. This is not a throw in the towel or anything like that for me. And I think I've been very clear on this and I talk basically almost every day on this sort of stuff. So if you're listening to us now, you probably listen to guy and me and market call or the other on the tape that we do or the okay computer or fast money or whatever. Listen, I've been very, I mean, my performance trading in the last four months has been about as bad as it's ever been. But I can tell you this and this sincerely, I feel about as good of our commentary at any time, because if all you want to do is turn on the folks with the pom-poms all day long, guy, and I know you have some similar feelings about this. When I think about making a story, a bull case or a bear case on a name, I want to know what the other side of it is. And so I think on a lot of levels, you could say, all right, well, that Nathan guy, he's a great contrarian indicator. That's fine. I'm right more than I'm wrong. And that's the main crux of this game here. But I think my analysis is usually fairly spot on. And sometimes just getting the market timing and the sizing and all that sort of stuff. That's the hard part here. Market has the ability to humble us all. And it's done it for me for, I'm going on, I think 36 years or so in this business. And it's remarkable. I say it all the time. And I think both of you would acknowledge this. There are times when you could tell me two or three days prior, all the news that's going to come out and say, this is what's going to happen we want you to trade on the back of that, and I will do things that'll be completely opposite of what's going to happen. So even if outcomes sometimes, you're going to be wrong in the market. And I think that's where I find myself right now. But Dan, you're a pretty voracious listener of podcasts. Is that true? I have no idea the answer to this, by the way. When do you think podcasting started? Probably 2008, 2009. The, the aughts. That's what they call those yeah. things, right? The aughts. Yeah. I can almost categorically guarantee you that On The Tape podcast is the first podcast in history to somehow weave Ernest Hemingway, for whom the bell tolls, into Carol King's I Feel the Earth Move, into a market diatribe. There's nobody else that's ever done that before. Just my opinion. Dan. All right. Fair enough. You know, and actually, I think some of the first podcasts were like like over 20 years ago, believe it or not. I think I read something recently about that. All right. We had a great conversation here, boys. Let's lick our wounds over the weekend a little bit. Let's try to find some ways to be constructive going forward here, but we're going to keep doing what we do, calling it the way we see it. Stick around. Guy was not present for this conversation. He was en route to Nashville, um, but Danny and I had a great conversation with Gabriela Santos of JP Morgan Asset Management. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections to the upcoming event, Salt iConnections in Asia, taking place on November 11th through the 13th at Marina Bay Sands, Singapore. Salt iConnections Asia is the largest capital introductions event in the Asia-Pacific region, bringing together 1,500 leading asset allocators and alternative asset managers from around the world. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On The Tape. I am here with Danny Moses and Gabriela Santos. She's the global market strategist at JP Morgan. Gabriela, welcome to On The Tape. Thank you, nice to be here. I was just saying before we got on here, I have seen you so many times with my very good friend, Scott Wapner from the New York Stock Exchange on the closing bell here. So it's really an honor to have you speak with Danny and myself. Guy wishes he could be here. He's a little under the weather here today. And we could, oh, we a, no. Yeah. 
But no, he's going to make it, though. He's going to pull through here. I think it was the bull market. <laughs> it, it was that breakout above 4,200 that put us all in a little bit of a yeah. tizzy here. The market's been trading in this really tight range. And I think a lot of us got used to, in 2022, we had the volatility bands widen in the equity market. They started to widen in 2021 in just all different sorts of risk assets other than the stock market. When I say widen, I also mean some downward pressure on them a little bit. And so this year is something that I think has caught a lot of people off guard a little bit. And we could go on and on about the narrowness of the rally that we've seen in the S&P 500. It's up 9% on the year. The NASDAQ composites up about 24%, but it's that NASDAQ 100 up 31%. And we know that's concentrated in about, I don't know, eight or 10 names or so. But really what we wanted to do with you is Get a sense for where you think people are going to be able to make money in the stock market in the back half of this year, because I think a lot of people like us were caught off a little bit off guard in the first half of this year. So we just really wanted to get a general sense for what you're thinking about this first five or so months. And what do you think a lot of investors got wrong in the first half of 2023? And not just the stock market, the bond market, which I know you fancy here as well. Yeah, I do think it's been interesting. The level of volatility has come in a bit for interest rates for effects, but it's stayed more elevated than it has been for equities. And so you continue to see some pretty elevated volatility in the bond market on the T-bill side related more to the, of course, debt ceiling discussions, but further out in the curve related to this debate about when the last hike will or won't be, as well as when the first cut will eventually happen. We also see the bond market reacting a lot more than the equity market this year to fears around recession concerns. For the FX market, we think it's a lot about interest rate differentials and growth differentials, US versus rest of the world, and some oscillating conviction around that. I think on the equity side, certainly I think what perhaps we, we got wrong in the sense that we've had stronger returns than we were expecting in, in just five months was really the emergence and the quick takeoff of this new long-term theme of artificial intelligence and just how quickly it captivated everyone's attention. But more than that, how quickly it's being integrated and monetized by several companies, whether it's semiconductors or semiconductor manufacturers or software companies or consumer-facing companies. I think outside of that, it's really pretty range-bound because there's very low conviction on the macro outlook. So you haven't seen that participation either from cyclicals or defensives. So there's still this big debate out there about soft landing, hard landing. And until there's more conviction there, it seems like the breath is going to stay pretty narrow in the U.S. stock market. And, and we need a bit more clarity on the macro picture before we really break out a bit here. Where we think we can make money, I would say, on the fixed income side is using this opportunity that yields have backed up substantially in May. This discussion about taking out rate cuts, pricing in another rate hike this year. We think we can make money by using this moment to extend duration, lock in these higher yields, benefit from price appreciation when yields eventually fall, which we think they will, and outperform cash over the next 12 months. Cash, we find a pretty dangerous place to continue in from here on out. And then on the equity side, the way to make money within the US, we think is really much more about leaning into the quality factor, the value factor in the sense of valuations, not the value style, and leaning into a bit more defensives, including tech and the theme around AI, but also including your pure defensives, like staples and utilities. The most interesting way to make money, we think, is the relative regional call, though. And we do lean into Europe, China, emerging Asia, because we think there can be a regional economic divergence in the second half of the year. The U.S. kind of muddled through and then eventually a contraction versus acceleration and upside to earnings in places like Europe and emerging Asia. So you have a boss who obviously agrees, I think, with some of the things you're saying in terms of he wouldn't want to move, have everyone move from cash to treasuries right away because that's been one of, the, one of the problems that has been occurring. 
But he's seen many cycles. And one of the things he talked about, which we talk about on the show, is quantitative tightening, how to really measure the impact that it's had. So when you look at rates and you talk about extending duration, and I think the average balance sheet for the Fed, I think the average duration is five to six years, let's say, I think on average is where they're sitting with north of four or five trillion dollars worth of treasury bonds. They've tried this experiment and it hasn't gone swimmingly. Obviously, I think we saw the anticipation in the markets themselves way ahead of when the Fed started beginning. And that's where we leave ourselves now with some of these bank positioning. How do you factor that into your thoughts on just liking rates, that rates are going to go down in general? Do you, is there math there that you're doing? Yes. Yeah, so we do think the idea about extending duration is thinking that probably yields on the curve have peaked. We find it hard to get the tenure to go back to the level we had in October, which was 4.3%. Uh, even with the May rally, we're 50 basis points below that. We find it hard also for the two-year, perhaps to get to the early March level that it had, which was a little bit over 5%. We're also about 50 basis points below that. And that's really because the discussion is much more on the next side of the mountain, right? The other side of the mountain and the eventual rate cuts that we'll get. Whether it's this year or not, that's still going to stay a debate. But I think the less you cut this year, the more you cut next year, right? And really, it's a discussion about a move lower from 5% to 3% eventually, whether it starts this year or only starts early next year. So that's the call for extending duration. In terms of quantitative tightening, the way we think about that playing into the thesis is actually that another ongoing break on global economic momentum and specifically U.S. economic momentum combined with the already cumulative 500 basis points of hikes we've had, which are still going to be impacting the economy long after we've had the last hike and have started the first cut and conjoined with the tightening and credit conditions that we also expect to continue in the background. So it adds some conviction to this idea of an eventual cut in rates because it keeps the probability of a pretty muted outturn in economic growth for the next couple of quarters high and an eventual contraction in activity over the next 12 months high. So it feeds into that theme. But I think this idea of quantitative tightening is coming up again in the sense of the withdrawal of liquidity related to the debt ceiling deal. And that we see impacting much more the short end of the curve, meaning the issuance of treasury bills that we expect to hit the market when hopefully <laughs> this debt ceiling deal is passed through the House, the Senate, and signed into law. And that's something that we do see continuing to create volatility and distortions in the very, very short end of the curve. But that issuance, we think, would happen in short-term treasury bills would not affect the call around the intermediate long end of the curve. So prior to being at JP Morgan, which I know you've been there for north of a decade, you were at HSBC Private Bank, right? You spent time in Singapore, Switzerland, and Mexico, I believe. So you've really been around the world in terms of seeing things. So from an opportunity perspective, we're so obsessed here with the U.S. and China's, we'll start with there, has really been in the news in terms of came out of this, blossomed out of COVID-19, had a quick start at the beginning of the year things look like they're really slowing there again on a relative basis. And I'm trying to figure out the impact both Chinese equities we've seen have obviously sold off here, but relative to the impact that may have on the globe, especially the U.S., talk about China for a second, please. I think we, we do forget that China now has the second largest, not just economy, but second largest equity and bond markets in the world. Full stop. And that's really the emergence of the local equity market, the A-share market, and the local currency bond market. It's very underrepresented in actual indices, but it's very relevant in not just its economic impact, but as an opportunity set going forward. And we're big believers in adding exposure to the areas that we see as opportunities within these local Chinese markets. On the economic side, I think China is an area where there is so much day-to-day -day noise. 
And it's a very different economic model than ours, and political model, certainly. It's socialism with Chinese characteristics. It's got much more opaque data. And so it's really a lot more complicated to understand, I think, than perhaps might meet the eye. And, and it's great that we've got our strategists on the ground. We now have JP Morgan Asset Management China. We've got a strategist in Shanghai that helps us <laughs> to make sense of all the noise. And I think the important thing to think about the reopening this year is this is the first time we're seeing this kind of recovery in China. It's unique. It is led by a rebound in household spending in services. So we have to be very careful what indicators we look at to confirm or deny this idea of economic momentum in China. It's not going to be the indicators we used to look at. So places not to look, in my opinion, are the manufacturing PMI, copper prices, iron ore prices. Those aren't going to tell us anything about this kind of recovery. What we should look at services PMI in China, which decreased this morning in the National Bureau of Statistics measure, but it's still at a very elevated level, over 50. We're still seeing double-digit growth in consumption of especially travel and leisure, of entertainment, of transportation in China. We also count a lot on high-frequency and alternative data these days in China. So indicators of subway traffic in the big cities, which is at 120% of 2019 levels, or domestic flights, which are at 105% of 2019 levels. So by those measures, it's going according to what should be expected. I do think equities in China have sold off 20% because about the outlook going forward for whether consumption can become a bit broader, right? Whether it can include not just travel and leisure, but healthcare and electronics and furniture and different types of consumption items. And there that will depend on whether private business confidence improves, boosting household confidence, and hence boosting spending and reducing savings. We do think it'll happen. It'll just take time and it might need a little more policy oomph to get us there. But China is a market we would be overweight and a place we do see as able uh, to generate alpha and generate superior returns in the second half, especially now that sentiment is so gloomy about the recovery. Yeah. So it's interesting because I feel like the sentiment changed on a dime, right? So in January, when they turned off their zero COVID policy, and I think that was something that gave at least US and European markets a little of a boost, especially when sentiment was so poor, at least here towards the end of the year. And now I look at what's going on under the hood. And if we want to just take away just the narrow breadth of the market rally here in stocks, I look at just in the last kind of month or so, I look at energy stocks are just getting actually trampled on. If you look at the XLE is down 13% from its April highs, that's the large integrated the OIH, the oil service names are trading at eight-month lows down 25% from its year-to-date highs. The metals and mining group is down 25% from its 52-week highs. Material stocks are down 8% in just the last month and change or so. And I look at those areas of our stock market, and they're saying something to me about global growth. And we know that 4.5% GDP print in Q1 in China was one of the lowest that we've had X the kind of the, the depth of of COVID in, in many years. And I say to myself, okay, the fits and starts with China are going to continue to have palpitations around the globe, especially at a time when we're starting to see our economy slow a bit here. So I'm just curious, how do you think of China as this engine of growth at a time where we don't have the level of clarity? We do have the ratcheting up of geopolitical issues. We have been in a trade war for about five years or a little more with China. It doesn't look like any of that stuff is going to abate anytime soon. So I'm just curious, what does China mean for the U.S. economy, for the European economy? And do you agree that it's starting to weigh on areas of our stock market? I think we have to be careful with blaming China for oil price declines. It's pretty incredible to see WTI below 70. Chinese demand is surging, as expected, because of this resumption in household mobility, this increase in domestic travel, the resumption of international flights, the surge in subway and car traffic in China. When we look at Chinese demand, it's going according to plan of oil. I think the reason that oil prices have fallen is supply. And specifically this week, it's leading into the OPEC plus meeting this weekend, where I think there's some concern or maybe just some hedging <laughs> that we might 
not have further cuts in production from them. And really, it's certain members within the group that have led to higher supply than we expected. And it's the sanctioned countries. It's Russian oil, it's oil from Iran and from Venezuela that has come in much, much higher than we expected this year. And of course, seem unwilling to cut that production. And hence, Saudi Arabia and other OPEC members might not be willing to shoulder the burden. We actually think it's this fall in energy and this weighing on the energy sector in the U.S. is much more driven by supply versus demand. I think for the China story is much more relevant for Europe in the sense of much, much closer trade between the two countries and specifically more of their companies deriving their revenue from China. It's double what the U.S. companies depend on China alone for revenue. And there actually this idea that the Chinese recovery has not been as disappointing as the narrative might seem actually is something that is another reason why we do think Europe will continue to outperform in the second half because it continues to be a huge boost to their big luxury goods companies that in their first quarter earnings are reporting significantly higher Chinese consumption of luxury goods than they expected and are guiding higher and higher for the rest of the year. So the one thing that binds all of this together is the U.S. dollar. It affects, has an impact on everything. Where's the dollar going to go from here? That's another product, if you want to call it, that's sending mixed messages, I think, to the market. It's really hard to tell what the Fed's driving it or policy. So can you talk about the U.S. dollar here? And would you be long or short or what you're watching for there? Sure. We would be short the dollar. And it's one of the reasons that we would overweight ex-U.S. equity regions. If you're doing it unhedged, which we think we should when investing in equities overseas, then that fall in the dollar appreciation of other currencies can be a nice cherry on top to local returns. But yes, that's taken a little bit of a back step in the month of May. The dollar has strengthened 2.6% in May. We find in our short-term FX models that currencies are driven by interest rate differentials, growth differentials, and sentiment. And I think in the month of May, the growth differential perhaps became a little bit at the margin, more optimistic for the U.S. versus Europe and China, at least the narrative shifted that way. Interest rate differentials stopped decreasing U.S. versus rest of the world because we put in another Fed hike and we took out two Fed cuts later in the year. And then sentiment turned just generally a little bit more cautious. And we saw some outflows from Chinese equities, for example, and emerging market equities. But we think this is a one step back, several steps forward for the dollar weakness thesis based on our idea of accelerating momentum overseas and still elevated probability of a mild recession in the U.S., being close to an eventual start in Fed rate cuts, but not there at all for Europe or Japan or the Bank of England, and sentiment eventually improving and continuing to return to ex-US markets because investors are just super, super underweight, these other markets. Yeah. So, Gabrielle, so you seem to think the next move by the Fed, and again, the timing is going to be difficult here, but it's going to be to a rate cut. What do you think some of the motivations are going to be? Is it that the economy is going to find itself into a recession and therefore their playbook is just to lower interest rates? And if you think about where they came from in such a short period of time, the idea of normalizing interest rates at a higher inflation bound would lend itself, I guess, especially if you look at most of the inflation readings, to getting, I don't know, Fed funds back towards 3% or something like that. So what do you think the reason for it is? And then where do you think Fed funds goes? Because the likelihood, it would have to be just a flat out black swan disaster for the Fed anytime soon to go back to that zero interest rate bound. Oh, 100%. I think that's where we have a lot of conviction is that was a last decade kind of experiment, this idea of the zero lower bound and negative real rates. And that's actually the most important part of this whole discussion of the Fed is the return of positive real rates. And the Fed estimates that the neutral would be 2.5%. The Fed and investors seem to have about 3% penciled in by the end of 2025. But those are still positive real rates of 50 to 100 basis points. So I think that's actually the, the most important read through of this whole thing. So throwing out the last decade's playbook doesn't work when we have positive real rates. And, and that's the focus on valuations again, on alpha over beta, and the ability of different sectors in different regions to do well. But I think, of course, the more short term discussion is much more around what the next Fed move is. Our conviction in May did decrease 
that the next move is a cut. And I do think that the market is right to pencil in at least a possibility of one more hike. Right? It's about possibilities, probabilities. That will very much depend on Friday's jobs report, on next week's inflation report, and of course, what happens with the passage of the debt ceiling deal. But there is a chance that maybe we get one more, whether it's June or July, sometime this summer. But that doesn't change our view that we're very close to the other side of the mountain of Fed rate cuts. And that's really centered on this idea that we'll eventually see the cumulative impacts of all of these hikes we've had so far still keeps the chance of a mild recession high. Maybe it's pushed back a few months, but we still see it as high. In addition to the credit tightening that's ongoing and will continue to be with us and is another break on economic momentum. We also think that just the math becomes a lot easier for inflation. It's actually very mathematically possible for inflation to get to 3% by the end of this year, just the year-over-year comps. And then for the Fed to feel like there's some conviction that throughout the course of next year, inflation can come back to 2%. Just remember that historically, between the last hike and the first cut, there's often not a lot of time, just on average about four months. Things can change very quickly when it comes to economic momentum, especially after such a fast rate hiking cycle. How do you look at corporate debt, government debt in its totality and the impact? You made a point about the lag impact, which we're now feeling. And I think you made a great point there. The last hike is normally followed by a quick cut because I think we're at that point, whether they pause or not. Now, I think a rate cut is coming soon. I think it's going to be this fall. I don't think people appreciate the corporate debt kind of role that goes on, right? It's three, five, seven-year paper. It's just now beginning to reset. There's zombie companies out there right now that can't get financing and or financing. And you, if you listen to these conference calls on these quarterly calls, you can just tell without looking at a balance sheet which CEO is, is bothered the most by what the Fed has done. But how do you think about that as its impact on the economy in general, on both the government side and the corporate side? It's interesting. On the corporate side, we saw over the last decade, of course, a huge increase in corporate debt. Tons of companies taking all the advantage in the world of the zero lower bound (laughs) to emit debt. But the reason we actually continue to say a mild recession is the idea that companies emitted a lot, of course, fixed rate, long duration debt. So the maturity wall doesn't come hard and fast all at once. It's something that's spaced out this year, next year, 2025. So it's a mitigating impact in terms of the economic picture and generally in terms of the default expectations that we have. But it doesn't mean that we won't see a normal increase in defaults as we normally see. And one of the big things we keep talking about is extending duration or adding fixed income in quality fixed income, in investment grade over high yield. We do expect a direction of travel in high yield to be higher and higher defaults, just not to the same peaks that we got in other recessions because there is such more long duration kind of debt. One area we look to break, and of course that became very popular in March to talk about what the next thing to break is, is certain areas or of corporate credit. It's much more the leveraged loan market, which over the past decade grew to be as big as the high yield market. And that's debt issued in floating rate and by companies that couldn't get financing in the terms they wanted anyway in the high yield market. So that's an area to be very careful with, even though we now have double digit returns. And of course, another area that we've been scrubbing portfolios for and testing them for is certain areas of office commercially backed securities and commercially mortgage-backed securities. It's not the whole space. We feel good about industrial, commercial, mortgage-backed securities, but it's specifically the office space. So it doesn't mean you won't have things break in the corporate credit market, just not so broadly. On the government side, if we're really back to normal interest rates, we're going to feel more pressure to have the conversation about the budget. And that's because interest costs and servicing the debt is going to become a higher and higher share of government spending. And I do think this year perhaps is not unique in this focus on honing in on cutting certain costs and having more difficult discussions about the trajectory of the debt. And that's something that perhaps we could have kicked down further and further down the line when rates were at zero and maybe we can't going forward. So one of the most fascinating markets to me that I don't think gets enough attention is what's going on in Japan. And when I think about the largest holder of U.S. Treasuries, right, a trillion dollars, outside the Fed, of course, that the impact and what's going on there, 
Their markets have rallied substantially. New BOJ governor there. Thoughts on Japan? Because I think it's playing a much more critical role than I think people are going to give it credit for. And I think we're in the early stages of that change. I agree. I think there have been such exciting changes, both in Japan and Europe. The two things they have in common is that they seem to have left the zero inflation era of the past decade. And not just because of temporary things like supply chains or energy prices, but really because of a more sustainable rise in wage growth. And this is true both in Europe and Japan. And so you're seeing a return of inflation expectations in these countries back to more normal levels. The change in interest rates in Japan, we do think is going to have an impact in terms of flows from Japanese pension funds, life insurers, retail investors. We've already started to see this happen last year when there was some widening of the yield curve control ban, so some money flowing back to Japanese fixed income. Because think about it, if you're a pension fund or your life insurance company, you don't want to have the effects exposure or the hedging cost of buying a, a different country's government bond. We did an interesting study that looks at Japan's share of different government bond markets and the ones to really focus a little bit more on as a concern. And the Japanese share is much larger in of the overall market in Australia, New Zealand, France. Those are specifically the countries where we see this as potentially lifting yields in those countries higher than perhaps would have just been occurring based on local factors. But we do think that these markets have plenty of demand of their own to somewhat offset some of this change in flow from Japan. And I think the impact of that is that we can expect the next decade to come with more normal interest rates there too. Europe's already there. It already has short-term rates over 3%. And we do think Japan is next, widening the yield curve control band and eventually exiting negative interest rates, perhaps later this year or early next year. That is a massive game changer for European and Japanese banks. Game changer. And we actually feel more optimistic about them than U.S. banks going forward. They also just have less of the exposures and concerns we had here and continue to have here about the regional banks. The other massive change for Japan, specifically Japan, is governance. And that's what's gotten everybody excited. This has been building and building, but it eventually hit an inflection point in terms of sentiment. This idea that the third era of Abenomics was improving corporate governance, having more independent members of the boards, having more of a focus on return to shareholders, so doing more buybacks and higher dividends. And this is really turning around the whole picture of earnings and the appropriate valuations to have for Japanese equities. I think there's the so many good reasons to think about closing some of those international underweights. And we talked about it for China, but I would also not snooze and miss what's changed more structurally in Japan and Europe as well. Gabriela Santos, she is the global market strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. We really appreciate you joining us on the tape. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.